Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This time on Vet Story. U.S.-Russian relations didn't begin with the Cold War. Wilson finally caved and agreed to send American troops into northern Russia, mostly made up of Michiganers and Wisconsinites. But they're only going to guard stores. They're not going to get in conflict with uh, the Russians. And as soon as they landed, that was off the table. At dawn on January 19th, almost exactly 100 years ago, uh, they were attacked by 1,700 Bolshevik fighters. We were talking, they were in the elements of 50, 60, 70 below through the winter. Water-cooled Vickers machine guns, you know, actually resorted to sleeping with them in their sleeping bags, trying to keep them warm. This uh, invasion is remembered much, much more in uh, Russia than here. Thus, the seeds of friction were planted between our two nations, and they have never really ceased. Uh, to the average Russian, maybe the, the feelings that turn about is fair play. All right, I got to admit, I am psyched for this next interview because the read-in to the book is thrilling. Let me just share with you the intro that I have. The Polar Bear Expedition, the heroes of America's forgotten invasion of Russia. It chronicles the historical instance when the United States and Russia were squaring off in a hot war in the final days of World War I. Roughly 5,000 soldiers, most hailing from Michigan, nicknamed the Polar Bears, waged war on Russian soil against the Soviet Union's Red Army. This unforgettable human drama, deep with contemporary resonance, is a masterful new history account from award-winning author James Carl Nelson, and it draws on an untapped trove of first-hand accounts that deliver a vivid soldier's eye view of an extraordinary lost chapter of American history. And here with me on the phone is James Carl Nelson. James, great to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me here. The stage that is set here is awesome. It, it, it begins in the last months of World War I. And talk to me a little bit about who and what's involved. Well, it basically begins with the Russian Revolution. Um, after the Bolsheviks uh, took over in late 1917, they took uh, Russia out of the war. Um, and they had been uh, heavily engaged with the Germans on the Eastern Front through, uh, uh, you know, Prussia, those areas. And so Germany was able to start transferring divisions to the Western Front, and they launched a huge offensive aimed at splitting the French and the British. And the Western Front was in great peril um, at that point. And we're talking hundreds of thousands of German soldiers. Um, and so basically the Allies, and especially the British, start, started casting around for a way to reestablish the Eastern Front and keep that pressure on Germany so they couldn't transfer any more troops to the West. And so that is really the crux of the matter. Um, and so the British started sending troops into Murmansk in northern Russia in the spring of 1918. And they began pressuring uh, Woodrow Wilson, the president of the United States at the time, to join in the intervention. There were French, 
like I said, British, Italians, uh, even Poles um, who were taking part in this. And uh, uh, Woodrow hemmed and hawed, and he didn't want to get involved. He didn't want to drain any troops from the Western Front. And finally, in mid-July 1918, Wilson finally caved and uh, agreed to send American troops into northern Russia Oh, solely for the purpose of guarding huge amounts of stores that uh, the Allies had sent to Russia to help their its own uh, war effort. And so the 339th, 339th Regiment, you're right, mostly made up of Michiganers and Wisconsinites, was selected. The uh, division, the 85th Division, was already in England, um, and the 339th uh, was ready, prepared to go to France and start, you know, joining in the Meuse-Argonne offensive or whatever they wanted them for. Instead, they were diverted and found themselves on transports headed for uh, Archangel, Russia. And uh, mm. that is pretty much where we, where we are. Uh, and then they landed uh, at Archangel on September 5th, 1918. The men got off the transports and were immediately hustled down the line you know, the, the whole operation was run by the British, and they were headed uh, sent south along a railroad track towards Vologda and southeast by boat towards the far-off city of Kotlis. Mm. And this was September, right? Early September of 1918, yes. So winter's on its way. Amazing yeah. to think that like they were ready and so bold as to entrench themselves into a conflict with Russia, knowing that the winter is coming. I guess that's why they chose guys from Michigan and Wisconsin, right? I mean, yeah, I think that's it. And also they had a new commander, George Stewart, who had actually uh, served time in Alaska. So, you know, he's familiar with some colder weather. I yeah. think, but I think, the, <laughs> I think them being northern men, uh, as opposed to Alabamians or something, made sense. But like I say, to reiterate, is that Wilson had you know, basically said, I'll send one regiment, but they're only going to guard stores. They're not going to get in conflict with uh, the Russians. We're going to stay out of it. And as soon as they landed, that was off the table. Now, correct my view of history. It was always my understanding that it was all the nations combined against Germany for World War One, and that we fought alongside some Russian counterparts. But they were already having a civil war in and amongst themselves, so we just got caught up into like a like a quagmire there with with the Bolshevik Revolution and World War One kind of happening simultaneously. I think the, the important point is, in Europe, they were uh, more afraid of uh, the coming of communism and the Bolshevik menace, because uh, it's, it's nearer to them uh, than perhaps the United States was. Uh, Wilson was pro-democracy wherever he could help democrat, democratic institutions thrive and people choose their own government, he was for it. Hmm. Um, but like I say, uh, they were sent to guard stores, and but immediately became combatants. Um, at the direction of the British commanders, uh, who actually had the larger idea of uh, uh, fomenting a counter-revolution against the Bolsheviks. And so the American soldiers were thrown into that, as were all the Allied soldiers. And uh, an interesting point, they were trying to, uh, they had this idea that they were going to be able to reach this uh, group of Czech soldiers called the Czech Legion. That was had, uh, They were mostly prisoners of war uh, from uh, the Entente, and they were heading towards Vladivostok by train. And the British had the idea we can contact this 80,000 Czech soldiers, turn them around, and they can come and help us reestablish this Eastern Front and foment this counter revolution. 
And it goes to show you that, like, even throughout history, I mean, we think we get into, you know, we're entrenched in this global war and terrorism, and sometimes we end up uh, finding clans and terrorism groups that we don't even understand, and they end up fighting each other on top of the global war we're trying to initiate. We just sometimes don't understand what's going on, on the ground till we get there. Talk to me about some of some of your favorite storylines of heroism and uh, survival amid the brutal Arctic conditions. Yeah, you know that's why we subtitled it. Uh, you know, the heroes of the uh, of the ex- of the invasion. What the conditions these men fought under, even though they might have been hardy northern Michiganers from Detroit, from Wisconsin. We were talking, they were in the elements of 50, 60, 70 below through the winter, piles of snow. They had weapons that they didn't like, didn't, couldn't really operate well, they thought uh, were terrible. They had water-cooled Vickers machine guns that froze up, and men you know, actually resorted to sleeping with them in their sleeping bags, trying to keep them warm through the night so they'd work. Um, wow. And meanwhile... You know, like Company A of the 339th was sent 250 miles southeast of Archangel and was on its own. Um, and so the furthest point on July, uh, January 19, 1919, was the first platoon of Company A. It was 46 men, and uh, at dawn on January 19th, almost exactly 100 years ago, uh, they were attacked by 1,700 Bolshevik fighters um, and began this running fight for their lives through deep snow, um, and it became, and then were besieged for several months further north. Um, and, you know, these men, what they endured, I mean, I, I could argue that it was worse what the average soldier on the Western Front went through just because of the elements, the conditions, the way they were outnumbered, and, uh, and how hard it was to get them supplies and that. And they really endured. Um, they lost 235 men, but 70 of that was from disease. Uh, now those men died. Um, almost as soon as they reached Archangel because the transports were infected with the flu. Um, but uh, just to persevere. And also on top of it, not really understand why you're there, uh, especially once the armistice was signed on November 11th, 1918. Word got to these soldiers out there in the middle of nowhere in northern Russia, and it became a question of uh, why are we still here? And to, that's like the mental aspect is something they also had to... Uh, uh, endure where there's no clear-cut reason to in their minds to what they're doing there. Amazing. Uh, we talk about the home front and the cries for bringing them home and the fact that they were kind of uh, demoralized because they didn't know why they were there. Uh, when you look at the dates here, now it's beginning to kind of make sense. Um, the armistice that was signed to bring the end of World War One was November of 1918, and what we just discussed was a battle that was going on in January of 1919, how is it that these guys were left out there to continue to fight, or why is it the administration would do that? Well, like I said, number one, it was under British command, um, and the British actually swa- swapped their commanders out in October. Uh, Edmund Ironside, a general, uh, wound up in an archangel, wound up taking over the operation, and he did a tour of the lines uh, through early winter, and he determined that these various outposts along this 400-mile front from east to west, that they were too vulnerable to attack if they tried to pull them out then. Another element is the White Sea behind them at Archangel had frozen over. So even if they pulled them all back, they were just going to be an Archangel anyway. It could still be besieged. So that was the thought. I mean, they they stopped trying to move forward pretty much... um, uh, not not all the time, but in the late late fall into winter, uh, the, the decision was made to hold your ground 
and uh, then we'll see what happens, basically. But it's interesting, Armistice Day itself, November 11, 1918, Company B on the Atulgas River, uh, I'm sorry, Atulgas on the Davina River, was attacked by hundreds of Bolsheviks and had a three-day battle for their lives. And this is, you know, right immediately on the day the World War I ended. And when World War I ended, it rendered the whole operation moot because there's no reason to guard supplies anymore. There was no reason to reestablish an Eastern Front. So I think it was almost just sort of like, uh, you know, the British commanders were still trying to figure out what are we going to do? You know, Winston Churchill was pushing to send another million men in. Um, and it was just sort of state paralyzation, I think, really was what it was. They're pretty well trapped until the spring, yeah. Mother Nature. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you, you talk about a heartbreaking return for some fallen brothers. Uh, that's a storyline in this book. Tell me about that. Yeah, what happened was the the uh, survivors of the uh, polar bear expedition, uh, they got back to the States, and they created this polar bear memorial association to, to keep the, the flame going for what they had endured. And I would say very, very bravely endured. And the idea came up uh, when they left Russia uh, in uh June of uh, 1919, they brought with them about 100 bodies of those who had fallen out of the 235 who had died. And I think, you know, burning in the back of a lot of these guys' minds was, you know, we left our comrades over there in Russia, and uh, we need to find some way to get over there and get those bodies back and bring them back home to the States for their families. And so they were able to raise some funds, and then a committee of about five of them actually traveled to Europe, to Germany, and then got permission to enter Russia and search um, for as many bodies as they could find. And uh, we're talking a very scattered area, too. Um, And they were able to locate 86 of their fallen comrades and uh, brought them back and buried some of them um, in Troy, Michigan. Uh, There's a Whitechapel uh, Cemetery, and there's a polar bear statue there. It's It's just a monument to the polar bears, and there are 56 of the uh, fallen who are buried around it. It's very, it's very spectacular. I was there in September, and uh, very, uh, I don't know, poignant tribute to them. Describe for me, like, what is around the area where they were? Like, what would it have been like? Was it like like frozen tundra? And I think like this yeah, kind I think of it's vast. A, it's a openness. mix of tundra, taiga, um, stunted forests, thick forest, brush. Um, very difficult to travel through. Uh, probably easier to travel through in the frozen winter than in the spring or fall when it was you know, a lot of rain. Um, and so very primitive conditions, um, very, very sparsely populated by, you know, right. uh, peasants who didn't have much, you know. Sparsely populated to the point where uh, a decade later, would remains have just been easy? I mean, would have just been exposed to the elements untouched? I think I think what they did is they 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 knew the battle areas or the main stations where these guys had been on the railway line or on the Vaga River, the Divino River, river. and they themselves were veterans uh, of those uh, fights, so they knew where to look. Number one, hmm. um, and then they asked around. They were able to ask around of the peasants there, and they would lead them to a, you know, maybe even even an unmarked grave. But so, so they were there for months, like four months, doing this hard work. And a lot of the comments were like, "I feel I'm back here when I was ten years ago. I got, I got nothing to eat. I got no smokes. You know, <laughs> sleeping on a peasant's floor." Um, so they they did really sacrifice to uh, bring these guys back. But I think it was a mix of 
foreknowledge and local intelligence that led them to many of the bodies. Plus, there were some uh, at a cemetery in Archangel. Yeah. That uh, there's an American cemetery there. They were able to exhume uh, some of those people from there. Mm, God bless. How have you documented this? How have you been able to tell this story? I mean, obviously, this is turn of the century, and this is into the 19-teens. Um, how were you able to get the interviews? Several of the men, when uh, when they returned um, to the United States, they wrote books about it. Actually, three of them wrote fairly big books. Hmm. Some were you know, kind of bitter. You know, uh, there's a guy, John Cuddy, hey, wrote this long book just named Archangel. So those were good sources of material. And then the uh, another good source was the Bentley um, Historical Library in uh, Michigan, at the University of Michigan. They have a whole section of material they've been uh, getting people to donate to. Um, it's basically called the Polar Bear Collection. It's, you know, it's letters, it's uh, diaries. Uh, and these men in this regiment really documented their times. They documented their times. I think they knew it was extraordinary what they're going through. So some very good diaries in there. Um, other f- official records that are in the National Archives that are official records of the expedition wow. uh, with good narrative reports uh, and saying where, where each unit was, what they were up to. So there's a wide variety of uh, means I used to put this story together. We tend to think that we, we've never fought the Russians directly. Uh, this literally proves that we have actually fought each other at one point. Um, do Russians remember this? Is this like like to a Russian citizen today? Do they realize that we've already been at war once? Is this something that's passed down from generations in their culture? Well, I think you know this. Uh, uh, whatever you want to call it, intervention, invasion, um, is uh, remembered much much more in uh, Russia than here to the average uh, Russian. Because for one thing. Uh, when when the Allies finally had to withdraw, um, it became great propaganda, especially for the Red Army and the and the Bolshevik regime to say, look, you know, we fought off these these invaders. Um, you know, this is this was great propaganda, and so for that reason, probably, and because to to push this anti-imperialist message through the years, they have taught school children uh, about this invasion. And uh, just so it's very much more in the forefront of the average Russian's mind than, than in the U.S. Because when it was all over and the soldiers came back to the U.S., it was kind of like uh, that didn't happen. It was sort of like except among the soldiers themselves, it was like swept under the carpet and people just moved on. Amazing. And to the average American now, it seems like we're talking about Russia so much more as far as current and contemporary politics, collusion in the 2016 presidential election, and what you just said is kind of mind-blowing, that, yeah, that it's forgotten to us, but not to them. If nothing else, there's context that, that, uh, you know, U.S.-Russian relations didn't begin with the Cold War. They go back quite quite, uh, farther. And you say here that this foreshadows this event— this battle, this season of war in World War One, um, this foreshadowed future conflicts that we would engage in. Yeah, well, I, I think Vietnam is a pretty apt parallel. Um, you know, there again, we we're trying to uh, stop uh, the communists in uh, Vietnam, um, and in some degree, I would say uh, Iraq and uh, Afghanistan. I mean, we basically invaded Iraq. I don't know how else you'd put it, but we did that. Sure, uh, and it's overthrow a regime. 
So as well, the polar bear expedition, you know, it didn't achieve its aims, uh, but its intent, as of, at least in the British mind, was to do that. So I think there are, there are clear parallels. And just the, the, the sheer act of sending troops unwanted into a foreign country, you know, uh, that's a pretty bold thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and history repeats itself time and time again. Yes, it does. Uh, it's certainly an incredible read, and it's an incredible thing to remember that till you and I talked at this length about this, this is something I had never known about, this chapter of our history, and it's interesting, especially this year, because this winter, although we're now past January, but this winter marks the 100th anniversary of the polar bears 1919 winter campaign uh, when historically would the campaign have officially ended or when would have the troops finally been removed uh you know they were there like i said from early september through the winter um and then it was, wasn't until mid-february there was growing pressure at home especially from uh people uh in in the uh, michigan area parents relatives friends started pressuring uh, congressmen senators there was actually a resolution uh, almost that failed by one vote because of the vice president that uh, the resolution was to bring the troops home. So they had some real allies in uh, the, the federal Congress, uh, the House and the Senate. Um, finally, you know, I think Wilson finally realized what, that it all had gone wrong, that, that his men were being used in combat, which he didn't appreciate. And so he basically said, OK, I want these guys out of here by spring. You know, so uh, they started by degrees under uh, Edmund Ironside. He had a whole methodology about how we're going to bring these guys back because they had to, you know, they could be attacked at any point. Sure. And luckily, for whatever reason, um, the the Bolsheviks kind of just let them go. I think they were just saying, hey, you know what? Uh, they're leaving. Let's just let them get out of here and then we'll just keep on with our own little civil war here. So they didn't really interfere with them trying to get out. And the... Uh, Men were pulled back to Archangel and started boarding the transports in early June. Uh, by then, the White Sea had been unfrozen. They first went to France, and then most of them were back in the States by mid-July of 1919. Mm. 100 years ago this year. Thus, the seeds of friction were planted between our two nations, and they have grown, and they have never really ceased. Uh, to this day, 100 years later, there's still a, a, you know, an easiness. Uh, well, yeah, you could say our... that, but we were we were we were uneasy allies th- through World War II, obviously, you know. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you could you could draw a line between uh, the polar bears uh, and now. Um, I don't know how direct it could be. I don't, and I, I can't say that it would have anything to do with these allegations of collusion, except that you know I, I did talk to one expert who said you know uh, to the average Russian maybe the the feelings that turn about is fair play. You interfere in our affairs, so we can. It's okay if we interfere in yours. Who knows? Yeah. From the pages of history to the front pages of today's news, the polar bear expedition, the heroes of America's forgotten invasion of Russia. James Carl Nelson, really appreciate your time on this 100th anniversary. Oh, well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.